You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. All right, well, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, as we kick off a new series today that we have entitled Holy Ambition. If you are a guest today, if it's your first time with us, I especially want to welcome you. My name's Jared, and I am one of the pastors here. And on behalf of the pastors and the members of this church, we're so excited that you uh, are with us today. Our hope is that you will come and you will hear from God. And then as soon as you're ready, that you will move from feeling like guests to feeling like family. And if you're interested in learning more about our church, uh, you can download our Fellowship Paragold app. That's a free app for you. Uh, just go to your, uh, whatever you go to, your app store, download that. You can find all sorts of information about our church. Um, also, if you're a guest, you might have received a Connect card when you came in. Um, we'd ask you to fill that out, turn that into me. I'll be at the welcome table. If you need to grab a Connect card, I'll have extra there. Um, and that's just a way of us to collect your information and to learn how to serve you to the best of our ability. And then also, we have a Next Steps missional community um, that exists for you. They are waiting every single Sunday by this door when you exit uh, to go back out on Pruitt Street, and they provide a free meal every single week for guests, for those who want to know more about our church and how to get involved. And so uh, there's no strings attached. You can show up, eat a free meal. They'll answer any questions you have, give you some information. And then within an hour and a half, you can be on your way. So uh, we really do want to try to connect you uh, the best that we can. There's several options for you, and I hope that you take advantage of some of those. So again, Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we are today. As we kick off this new series, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, I'm going to read in verse 1 through verse 11, and then we will dive into it. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile was in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down, and its gates were destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them from, uh, gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And do the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. 
Let's pray together one more time. Father, I thank you so much for every man, woman, and child who is here today, who got out of bed, and um, who made their way into this building. I pray for our kids and all the teachers who are in their rooms right now as they hear the gospel. I pray that even in their young hearts that you will use that as a time to plant seeds that will produce fruit much later, maybe even sooner than we expect in their lives. I thank you so much now for the opportunity we have to dive into this sacred book that you have given us that has stood the test of time that is your word and it's active and it's, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And I pray that through it right now that you will pierce our hearts, that you will help us all to be the men, the women, and children that you have created us to be, which has hearts tethered into a relationship with you. And it's in Christ's name that we do pray these things. Amen. Well, earlier this week, I was at St. Mary's Cemetery with a couple men from our church, enjoying for a brief moment some spring weather. And we were praying over each of you. And while I was standing there, I noticed uh, something that I, I tend to notice when I'm a cem- in the cemetery. And it's the fact that I'm, as I'm surrounded by all these tombstones, I notice that they all have one thing in common. And that is, if you look at the tombstone, what you'll see is every single one of them have two dates on there. There's the date of a person's birth, and there's the date of a person's death. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but in between these two dates is this tiny little dash. And what I began to think about this past week is as I stood there on Wednesday, I was reminded of the reality that all of us one day will die. And what matters most is what we do with that tiny little dash. And the reason I share that with you this morning is not because I'm trying to be overly dramatic or depressing, but I share that because I believe that deep inside of each of you here today is a desire to make your dash count. You desire greatness. And I think this desire that you have inside of you has been placed in you from birth. In fact, if you think about whenever you were a kid and someone came to you and said, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Chances are you didn't say, mm, mediocre, right? Chances are you didn't respond by saying, ah, you know, I think I just want to settle for the status quo. I mean, yesterday, my son and I, we were going to his t-ball practice, and on the way there, out of nowhere, he says, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be a monster truck driver. I mean, like, literally, he's dreaming of something bigger than himself. And I think my son is like all of us in that when we were born into this world, we were born with a God-given desire for something greater, something beyond us. The problem is... Because we live in a fallen world, because we live in a world that is turned in on itself, all of us on some level or another are tempted to trade God's definition for greatness for a worldly definition. All of us are tempted to buy into some version of the American dream, to believe the lie that if I'm going to make my dash count, make my life count, then I need to go and get a degree, and I need to get a degree where I can land a job, where I can make enough money, where I can buy a house, have a nice-looking spouse, you know, 2.5 kids, a golden retriever, and at the end of it all, retire with enough money to sit on the lake. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things, by the way. In fact, if you have a lake house, let me know. My family and I would like to use it this summer. Um... (laughs) I am not at all against nice things, but listen, I have a growing concern. I have a growing concern, especially for us millennials, that if we are not careful, we are going to allow our God-given desire for greatness to be hijacked by a worldly ambition that though it will look like everybody else around us, if we are not careful, if we leave this worldly ambition unchecked and unabated, it will absolutely destroy and distort the life that we were created to experience. 
And I'm not preaching at you this morning. Like I, I'm preaching to myself, I promise you. This past week on Monday, I woke up and I found out about uh, there's a mega church in Jonesboro that's starting a new campus in Paragold. And this is a church, many of you are familiar with, they do things really well. I mean, there's nobody that does a Sunday gathering probably better than this church. And I wish I could tell you that whenever I first heard that, my thought was, praise God. You know, like, praise God, man, there's another church going to be here that's going to be, you know, proclaiming the gospel and hopefully seeking to call people to what Christ called them to and making disciples so we can take the kingdom forward. But that wasn't my first thought. My first thought was, oh, man, we're screwed, right? <laughs> like, like, I got to start looking for a job, you know, like, you know, because because my thought was, I mean, here's this church, they're coming to town, they're going to be the shiny new object, and, and they're going to pull people from other churches, including fellowships, so this time next year, some of you that I love dearly, I won't see, because they'll be the next kind of, you know, big thing in town, or whatever else, and I found within myself, the more I thought about it on Monday morning, as I'm working on the sermon, that's just a spirit of, like, competitiveness, sort of rising up in me, and rivalry, and selfish ambition, and so I had to get the number to the uh, campus pastor, and I just reached out to him and said, hey man, I just want to be honest with you, like this is where my heart is, but I don't want it to be there, and I want to welcome you the way I wish other pastors would have welcomed me whenever I moved here with my wife to plant this church, and and, and, man, I want to partner with you, and I, I pray that God will use us to bring in more people into the kingdom. And I wish I could tell you that after I did that, that I didn't ever have any selfish ambition the rest of the week. But the truth is, all week long, I have been praying, God, please liberate me from worldly ambition and replace it with holy ambition so that I can be freed up to experience the life you have created me to experience. And listen, that hasn't just been my prayer for me. That's been my prayer for each of you this week. That God would, because our life is short, take our ambition for whatever it is and purify it for his holy purposes. That he would uproot our worldly ambition and he would replace it with a holy ambition. That's what this whole series is about. And to get started this morning, I think if we're going to be a people of holy ambition, the question we need to answer this morning is what exactly does holy ambition look like? What does it look like to make our dash, to make our life count, not just for our good, but ultimately for the glory of God? That's the question I want to run after in the next 20 to 25 minutes. And then hopefully over the next 10 weeks, as we work our way through this book, what we will discover together is how to move from the ruin of selfish ambition into the revival that holy ambition brings. Does that make sense? And so this morning as we kick off, I'm going to look back in chapter 1, and I want you to see four things This morning, four things about holy ambition. And what I want you to see is that holy ambition, one ask, two weeps, three praise, and four acts. I want to give you a short word on each of these, and then I'm going to provide some practical implications that we can apply in our daily lives. So first off, holy ambition, ask. If you look again in verse 1, it says, Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, I was in Susa, the citadel, and Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And then look at this. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. Now, in order for you to understand what's going on here, I need to nerd out on you for like two minutes, okay? I promise you, you'll survive. Just hang on. Um, A little background here, what's happened that leads us up to this point is Israel, because of their unfaithfulness, have watched their nation split in half. Okay, you have the northern kingdom now, which kept the title Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom, which would be known as Judah. And what happened to these two kingdoms is in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was sacked by the Babylonians and then taken into exile throughout the world. What later happened is 130 years after this, the southern kingdom was sacked by the Babylonians... 
and they would be dragged into exile, and they would have their temple knocked down, and Jerusalem would basically be burnt to the ground. So things are not going very well for Israel in this moment in history. But just whenever it looked like that the covenant promises that God had made to the people of Israel are now dead, the Persians come into power. And what happens when the Persians come into power is they conquer the Babylonians who had conquered the Assyrians. And then what happens at the end of Second Chronicles, which I know you all have memorized, we find the Persian king impressed by the Holy Spirit to rebuild Jerusalem. So he raises up this man named Ezra. He sends him back to Jerusalem with a remnant from the people of Israel to go and rebuild the temple and also try to bring about some moral reform. And so they're trying to do that work. It's not exactly going as planned. They're still hitting some difficulties and some roadblocks. And while all of this is going on, Hananiah comes to this man, Nehemiah. And what you need to know about Nehemiah is this. Nehemiah is an Israelite man who now finds himself in an incredible position of influence. I mean, literally, he is a cultural elite situated next to the power center of the world. Nehemiah tells us right here in verse 11 that he was a cupbearer to the king, which means that literally he was the guy who tasted the food and wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned before the king tried it. So this guy is not eating ramen noodles and box wine from a gas station. Like He is living in luxury. He's safe. He's not living in threat. And he actually lives 800 miles away from Jerusalem. So he's not being confronted with the problems there. It'd be very easy for Nehemiah to just turn a blind eye to what's happening back home. But whenever Hananiah appears to him in verse 2, Nehemiah asks him about the state of the people of Israel. He says, what's going on there? And the reason this is so important, and listen guys, you're going to see this in the book of Nehemiah, and you're going to see this in your own life. What you need to understand today is this. The questions you ask about the world and about God will ultimately define the destiny you end up living in. In other words, what you are curious about, the kind of questions that you are asking, will often reveal what you're most passionate about, and what you're most passionate about will often carve out the path that you end up taking in your life. Hananiah comes to Nehemiah, And Nehemiah, because he's passionate about the things that God is passionate about, ask about the people of Israel. And look how Hananiah responds in verse 3. It says that, that, that he responded to Nehemiah by saying, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame, Nehemiah. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Um, last night, at 11.46 p.m., I was sleeping on my couch, not because I'm in the doghouse, but because my wife has strep throat and I'm a germaphobe. And I'm flying out to Seattle early tomorrow morning to come back into Little Rock Wednesday to do a wedding on Hot Springs Thursday, so it's a big week for me. So I'm like, I just want to try to stay healthy, please. So I'm sleeping on the couch. At 11.46 p.m., I hear a knock on my door, okay, living room door, like right behind my head, probably like 15 feet away from me. And I raise up, right? I mean, I'm like startled because I've never got a knock on my door at 11.46 p.m. at night. So I knew, like, this is not normal. Something's going on here. But I'm also, like, trying to, like, gather myself. I could imagine that. And as I'm trying to process what's going on, immediately I hear another knock, but this time much louder. And then it's followed by someone flashing a light into our house. And so I'm a little freaked out, right? So so I, I, I get up. I mean, my heart's pounding out of my chest, but I go to the door. And I open the blinds, and when I do, I notice there's a police officer standing there uh, on my front porch. I'm like, okay, this isn't good. My first thought is someone's died that I know, and they maybe try to call me. They couldn't get me, so they're coming to my house. And so I open the door, and I'm like, uh, can I help you? 
And he said, uh, yeah, man, uh, do you typically leave the gate to your fence open? And I'm like, what? And he said, do you typically leave the, 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 the gate on your, on your privacy fence open? And I'm like, well, actually, it stays open because it's broke. And he said, okay, well, I was driving by, and I think I saw someone run through there, and the gate was open. And so, like, we've had a few break-ins here uh, in Carriage Hills. Not to freak you out, anybody, if you live in Carriage Hills. And he's like, and they've been going in through the back. So I'm going to go check it out. I don't think anybody is there, but you need to make sure you get your gate fixed in order to protect your family. And I started thinking, like, about this you know, the whole sermon here. And I started thinking, you know, as important as a gate is in our culture today, even in a safe place like Paragould, it's, it, it's way more important here in the first century. Because literally, like, gates in the first century were like the way to protect yourself from attack against the enemy. Gates and walls in this century were more important than an army. I mean, literally, if you didn't have gates and walls, you were at the mercy of robbers and raiders. If you don't have walls, therefore, you would not have a city. So gates and walls are incredibly important, far more important here than they even are today in our time. And what the news that Nehemiah receives by asking a question, a question that is fueled by holy ambition, is that the walls and the gates have been torn down. And what's amazing to me is the fact that, if you think about this, Nehemiah, when he asks this question, what's incredible to me is he doesn't need these people. Nehemiah is in a privileged position. His life is being taken care of. He has favor with the most powerful uh, person on the planet. He has a lot going for him. And though he could have just sat back in this cushy, comfy position because of his holy ambition, he asks a question. And listen to me, guys. It is often through these tiny questions that great moments are birthed. If you think about the reason that you're married today and you have kids, you know why? Because someone asked a question. Will you go out with me? Will you marry me? If you have an iPhone, how many of you have an iPhone? Raise your hand. How many of you have an iPhone? That's incredible. Or if you have an iPad or a MacBook, right? The reason you have it is because someone asked a question. Steve Jobs went to Ed, uh, John Scully, who worked for Pepsi at the time, and said, Hey, you want to spend the rest of your life making sugared water, or do you want to join me in changing the world? I think about Jesus and his question to the disciples, will you follow me? Every great movement in the scripture and out of scripture, scripture throughout history, every great movement is fueled by someone asking a question. Why are things the way that they are? Where should I go? What should I do? Will you partner with me? Questions, guys, change the world. So the question I want to ask you this morning is what questions are you asking? What is it that you are most curious about? Nehemiah learns that there is a remnant and people, a remnant of Israel in great trouble, that their walls have been broken down, their gates have been burned, and he learns this because he simply asked a question that was fueled by holy ambition. So first thing we see in here is holy ambition ask. The second thing we see is not only does holy ambition ask, but secondly, we see that holy ambition weeps. After he hears about the news that's going on in Israel, look how he responds in verse 4. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. When is the last time you wept about something that wasn't about you? When is the last time that literally your heart was so broken, maybe about a refugee situation in our city or someone that's in an addiction or a marriage that's fallen apart or death or disease. When is the last time that you saw brokenness in the world and your heart was so broken by it that you literally cried? 
the reason I ask that, guys, is listen, what you weep about will often tell you the state of your heart. What you cry about literally will tell you what you value the most. And what we need to understand today is whenever holy ambition is confronted with the brokenness of the world, holy ambition doesn't push it off. Holy ambition welcomes brokenness. Holy ambition sits with brokenness. It feels the weightiness of the situation. And if we can be honest today, in America, this is becoming harder and harder to do because we live in a world with things like social media and news apps. We're being bombarded with information after information, and we're moving from story to story. And we can literally switch from stories so quickly that we no longer have to sit in anything and feel it for more than like five seconds. I mean, just this past week, think about this. I was scrolling through my news app. First story I come across says this. Here's the headline. 25% of American young women are now on antidepressants. One in four women in America are on antidepressants right now. I read that, but I scroll to the next news, and I'm not lying. The very next news clip said this. Australian punk turtle that breathes through its genitals is added to the endangered list. So any compassion I had for women in America is immediately raw from a turtle that breathes through its genitals. Right? The burden doesn't stick. I I think about the movie Hotel Rwanda, which is this very moving film about a civil war that broke out, about genocide basically that broke out in Rwanda in 1994. And there's a scene in there where a man comes to an American reporter and says, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you've recorded all of this because I know when you take this footage back to America and they see what's all happened here, they're going to be moved to compassion and they're going to help us. To which the man responded to the reporter, unfortunately, I think when Americans see this, they'll say, oh my God, that's horrible. And then they'll go back to eating their dinners. We live in a numbing culture, guys, where we are confronted with so much suffering because we're in the age of information. We're no longer really shocked by anything, are we? And if we are shocked, we move on so fast, we no longer learn how to sit in the pain and let it wash over us. And this may seem like a really good thing, But the truth is, when you look in Nehemiah and throughout Scripture, what we see is holy ambition weeps over the things that God weeps about. That's why A.W. Tozer says in his very famous quote, It is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he's hurt a man deeply. In other words, if you want to make your life count, God needs to break your heart for the things that breaks his heart. So holy ambition asks the right question. Holy ambition weeps. Third, what we see is also holy ambition prays. Eleven different times throughout this book, what you'll see is Nehemiah praying, and sometimes he prays big, like bold, or theologically rich, like drop to your knee prayers, like we're about to see right here in chapter one. Other times it's breath prayers. So the point is, no matter what Nehemiah is faced with, his knee-jerk reaction is always prayer. And here's what's incredible, guys. Think about this. Nehemiah is not a priest. Nehemiah is not a prophet. Nehemiah is a government official. He's a businessman. He's in a secular position. He's a man with a type A personality that is all about getting things done. And yet whenever he's confronted with the problems of the world, he doesn't just immediately go into fix-it mode, but rather, first thing he does is he prays. And when he prays, if you look in verse 4... It says here, um, I wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And look how he prayed. Verse 5. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice, 
Nehemiah, again, he has access to the king of Persia, guys. The most powerful man in the world. And Nehemiah literally says, you know, I appreciate you and all, king of Persia, but you're not the man. You're not the one who can fix this problem. I mean, God may use you to fix the problem, but ultimately, only God can do this. And because Nehemiah knows there are so many things in this world that only God can pull off and do by his power, before Nehemiah goes to anyone, listen, guys, hear that. When problems arise before Nehemiah goes to anyone, including the most powerful man on the planet at that time, he goes to God. And the next thing he does, I love this, in his prayer, verse 6, he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we've sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses to speak. So look here, in Nehemiah, there's no victim mentality. You get that? Like like there's no blame shifting. There's no self-righteousness. He doesn't look and say, well, those people are the problem. He says, we are the problem. He doesn't say, those people sin. He says, no, God, we all have sinned. And Nehemiah knows because of his sin, right, he is deserving of judgment. But then notice, rather than sitting in guilt, he moves from a place of confession to the promises of God. In verse 8, let's keep reading. He says, remember, verse 8, the word that you commanded to your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcast from the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And then verse 10, For they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. I love the confidence in Nehemiah's prayers. We have to get this, guys. Nehemiah literally in his prayers quoting scripture back to God. He's remembering and recalling the promises that God has made and he's reminding God of his promises. And that is because Nehemiah was a man who believed God is who he says he is and he will do everything that he says he's going to do. And therefore as a result of that when he prayed, Nehemiah prayed expectantly. He prayed with an expectation that God would answer his prayers. And listen, the reason I think this is so important is for some of us When we pray, we pray anything but expecting God to answer. I mean, just think about the way some of us pray. Sovereign God of the universe who decreed all things before time began. If it is your will, which I know I really can't know because it's a great mystery. And probably like your will is not the same as my will because i got a really wicked heart. But if it is your will and you find some time, please answer this prayer. And God, I know you're just going to do whatever you're going to do, anything. So just do what you're going to do for your glory. The end. Amen. Like, no wonder God can't answer some of our prayers. Nehemiah prays promise-claiming, audacious, specific, expectant prayers. He prays with a holy boldness that was birthed out of a holy ambition. So holy ambition, one asks, two weeps, three prays, and then finally, what we see in here is holy ambition acts. If you look with me in verse 11, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant." And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. We'll see this more clearly in the weeks to come. But in this prayer, give your servant success. What we see here is God is now birthing in Nehemiah a burden to step out in faith. He's birthing in Nehemiah the burden to use his gifts and his potential and his personality to be a solution to the problem.
I was reading this this past week, and I was thinking about back in 2007, whenever I lived in Louisville, Kentucky. I was going there to go to seminary, but I was a part of a church for the very first time where I thought, like, man, this is what it means to be a part of the church. I remember being a part of this church and thinking, oh, I would love to see a church like this in Louisville in the city of Paragold someday. And I began to pray, like, God, like, please, like, birth a church like this in my own, in my own hometown. And you know what happened is the more I prayed, the more I began to get the burden that God wanted me to be an answer to those prayers. And eventually I came to a place where I was like, literally like, I cannot not plant this church. And so people would come to me and they'd be like, well, Jared, you're too young. Or you don't have enough money. Or you have no core group. Or you're looking at like planting a church in a city where there's a church building on every single corner. And I would hear all this pushback. But to everybody I'd say, I know, I know, I know. But literally I cannot not do this. And it's the same thing we see happen with Nehemiah. As he's praying, as he's processing this, rather than just sitting back on the burden saying, oh man, that's terrible. I hope somebody fixes that someday. Or rather than complaining about it to other people, or rather than just kind of sitting and waiting for someone else to fix it, Nehemiah came to a place where he says, I cannot not do this thing. Now he would wait four months before he would act on it, and there's some wisdom there for all of us. He didn't just like receive the burden and immediately like act on it. He let it marinate, he let it set, he prayed through it some more, he gathered some really helpful information, but eventually because Nehemiah cared about the things that God cared about, because he was a man of holy ambition, he would ask the right questions, he would weep over the brokenness he saw, he would pray about it, and then eventually he would act. So these are the four things that we see Mark a life of holy ambition. Now, here's what I want to do, and we'll be dismissed. I want to share a few implications with you, some practical takeaways in light of this, some things that we can apply this week in light of this truth. And the first thing I would say is because this is true, what I want to encourage, if you want to be a person of holy ambition, start this week by examining your ambitions. And the way that you can examine your ambitions is I would encourage you to do what I would call, uh, basically just, it's, it's taking an audit of your own emotions. Ask yourself, for example, this week, why did I get so mad whenever that person said that to me? Like, what was really behind that? Like, what, what, what's really at the heart of why I'm angry about that? Or why am I so afraid of this thing? Or ask yourself, like, why is it that I have become convinced that I cannot be happy, that I cannot have joy apart from this? Why am I running after that so hard? Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Donald Whitney, who is a professor at the seminary I was at in Louisville, Kentucky, and actually was born in Jonesboro, Arkansas, says this, one way to clarify spirituality is to clarify ambition. So in other words, why do I care so much about the things that I care about? Why is this so important to me? Why do I want the things that I want. Earlier this week, I was reading John chapter 12, where it's talking about how Jesus was gaining all this momentum. People were coming to him and following him. But there's this really sad line in John 12, 42, where it says, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. And listen to this line. This is a haunting line, verse 43. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We all long for greatness. We are all a glory-hungry people. The question is this morning, whose glory are you seeking? Are you seeking your own glory or are you seeking God's glory? Are you seeking a short momentary applause? Guys, listen, please, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow, guys. 
It's here today and it's going tomorrow. Are you seeking that or are you seeking that which is eternal? So first thing I'd say practically this week, examine your ambitions. Take time to consider, why am I doing what I'm doing? Second thing I would encourage you to do practically this week is to open yourself up to the call of God and stay open to the call of God. Because we live in a fast-paced culture, it's easy to fall into the tyranny of the urgent, especially if you have little people in your house, right? You just kind of go into management mode, right? You're like going from activity to activity to activity. You're just trying to keep your head above the water. And as a result of that, I think what's easy at times is, is to not stop long enough to just consider, am I still on the right track? Sometimes we assume, like, well, since I was good three years ago, I'm still good now. Since, I, since God wanted me to do that two years ago, I'm sure it's still what he wants me to do today. But stop long enough to consider, like, am I still opening myself up to the call of God? Or have I just gotten pretty comfortable with kind of cruising where I am? A.W. Tozer says this, complacency is the deadly foe of all spiritual growth. In other words, the moment that you get comfortable, the moment that you assume God doesn't want to do something new in your life, the moment that you stop stepping out in faith is the moment you shut yourself off to God doing great things in you and through you. So evaluate your ambitions. Secondly, be open to the call of God in your life. And finally, if we're going to be a people, if we're going to be a church marked by holy ambition, please hear this. If we are going to be a people, if we are going to be a church marked by holy ambition, guys, listen, we have got to start channeling our angst into prayer. If you are regularly on social media, If you're checking Facebook and Twitter every day, you're probably getting angry every day. And I think the temptation is for us, especially now in a social media context like ours, is to get angry about a lot of stuff and do nothing about any of it. Um, To get angry about the selfishness of someone else. To get angry about the injustice that we see. To get angry about how someone treated their spouse in their marriage and then turn on Netflix. I want to encourage you, listen, the next time you get angry this week, rather than complaining to somebody else about it or just talking negatively in your head, I want to encourage you, take your anger, take your frustration to God. And here's what I want you to do. Just simply to say, God, what do you want me to do about this? It's obviously frustrating me. It's making me angry when I see this and that person or that person. What do you want me to do about it? And sometimes this is what happens. God's going to say, I don't want you to do anything about it. I want you to, I'll handle that. You just keep praying for them. Keep your mouth shut. You don't go gossip about it, but you just pray for them. Sometimes God's going to say, you know what you need to do? You need to take the log out of your own eye before you focus on the speck in your brother or sister's eye. Sometimes God's going to say, actually, I do want you to do something about it. I want you to go speak the truth and love to that person. I mean, God can give you a hundred different things, but I want to encourage you this week, when your heart is broken by something, if you want to be a person of holy ambition, take your frustrations, take your angers, take your sorrow to God in prayer. Eventually, Nehemiah, as we'll see in the next few weeks, would go on with the help of the people of Israel to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And as a result, think about this, Israel would be able to stand against their enemies, which resulted in the preservation of the family line, which Jesus Christ himself would descend down through this world so that we could have salvation. And you know what Hebrews tells us? The same gates and walls that kept Jesus safe, that allowed him to to come through this family line into the world, are the same gates and same walls that he left to shed his blood for you and for me. 
The gospel tells us that literally Jesus Christ left his comfort in his cushy position. And he came and he defeated the enemies that we could have never defeated. The enemies of sin, death, and hell. So that we can have the satisfaction and the salvation that we are longing for. And today, if you are here and you are a Christian, if you have trusted in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, be reminded of these truths by coming and turning off a piece of bread, dipping it in the juice. We have two stations in the front, two in the back, a gluten-free option to my far left. But if you're here today, please listen before we all shuffle. If you're here today, with all the love of my heart, I plead with you, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, rather than receiving communion, receive Jesus. I can tell you this much. I, I don't have a perfectly pure ambition. I've got mixed ambitions in my heart. But I'll tell you one holy ambition I know I have. And I'm speaking on behalf of the pastors of this church because I know they share this ambition. More than we want to have a big church at fellowship, you know what we want to see? We want to see true conversions. More than I care about us attracting people from other churches, which if you're here from another church, God bless you. Glad you're here. Really, I'm thankful for you. But more than us planting so that we could have the best music or this or that and attract more people from other churches, we want to see people attracted to the kingdom of God. We don't want to just grow Fellowship Paragon. We want to grow the kingdom of God. And that happens through simply admitting that you're a sinner and because of your sin you've separated yourself from God and, man, just freaking kicking your pride to the back seat and saying, I don't care what anybody else thinks about me anymore. I don't care about what the enemy's telling me about how I've screwed up too much and how I've gone too far. Man, I'm going to trust that Jesus is enough. And just surrender your life to him. Just surrender. Come to him with the empty hands of faith and receive everything that he's done for you. And if you want more information about how to do that, you can come and talk with me or Adam or Luke, someone you came with. We would love to help you understand the next steps. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as the band comes forward. I'll pray for us. We'll partake of communion. We'll sing one more song, and then we'll move out with this message. <clears throat> Father, I thank you so much again for every man, woman, and child that's here. You have created them. You tell us in Jeremiah that you knitted each person here together in their mother's womb. They're here for a purpose. They're here for a reason. And so many times, Father, I know it's so easy. I know for me to be deceived, to begin to believe the stories of the world about why I'm here or what a life well lived is. God, would you please replace those lies with truth today? I pray... Here's what I'm praying right now specifically. I'm praying for the furthest person from you right now will be converted. I'm praying that the lukewarm Christian here, the person who may be even right now saying, I'm not coming back next week, will be a leader in this church a couple years from now. I'm praying that you will do something so radical that you will work in the heart of of the most wicked and vile and hard-hearted a person in this room that we'll all get to celebrate and be reminded of the fact that you are alive and that you're mighty to save, and that your grace is sufficient. Father, remind us of that wonderful grace. Remind us of the good news that we have in your gospel today as we partake of communion. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.